Support for the Energy Gang comes from Dandelion Energy, the leading home geothermal company. Homeowners who make the switch to geothermal heating save on average $2,250 per year. Visit dandelionenergy.com gtm to see if your home qualifies. Support also comes from Wonder Capital. We produced a podcast in collaboration with Wonder last week about how to create an intentional career. We talked with Wonder CTO Dave Reese about the framework he used to completely change his career path into solar, eventually co-founding a successful company, that company being Wonder. You can listen to that episode at the Interchange Podcast. It's linked in the show notes, and you can find it anywhere you get your podcasts. Find out more about Wonder's financing options at wondercapital.com gtm. From Green Tech Media, this is The Energy Gang, weekly debates and discussions about the fast-changing world of energy, clean tech, and the environment. I'm Stephen Lacey, a contributing editor with Green Tech Media. Welcome. So we weren't planning on making the Green New Deal a weekly thing on this show, unless something big happens. But then this video of Senator Dianne Feinstein dropped over the weekend, where she appears to be lecturing climate-protesting kids, and it set off a chain reaction of outrage. The social media fervor has since died down, but some really interesting journalism was left in its wake. The whole affair highlighted the crazy upheaval in climate politics, so we're going to tackle some of those bigger questions raised. Then, what could be more scintillating than Michael Cohen testifying to Congress? How about a lawyer representing a secretive utility group that spent millions to fight air pollution rules, now sitting as the country's air pollution authority? We're going to invite Zach Coleman, a reporter for Politico, onto the second half of the show to talk about the ties he uncovered. What do they tell us about the state of lobbying ethics and utility power in the nation's capital? I just want to let my co-host know that I am recording this encounter. I've got 15 kids in tow. The clip will be edited later. You've been warned. (laughs) Catherine Hamilton is the chair of 38 North Solutions. She's there in Washington, D.C. Good morning, Catherine. Good morning. Jigger Shaw is the president of Generate Capital. He is in Bethesda, Maryland, just outside D.C. Good morning, sir. Good morning. It is a wonderful day to talk politics. (laughs) Before we do that, a quick reminder, we have a live show coming up on April 4th at the MIT Energy Conference in Cambridge, Massachusetts. Will Jigger wear his puffy vest? Jigger, are you going to wear your puffy vest? I think I'm expected to wear my puffy vest at this point. Will Catherine try to control me and Jigger from fist fighting? Catherine? I, of course, I always, uh, I, I represent that role. (laughs) So what will power grids look like in 2040? That's the topic that they're covering at the conference. If we're going to minimize energy poverty and global warming and transform grids in developed countries, what should those electricity systems look like? That is what the MIT Energy Conference is going deep on. And we are going to go deep as well on April 4th. The conference is on April 4th and 5th. We are on the 4th. We're going to be sometime in the morning as the keynote. If you want a discounted pass, use the promo code ENERGYGANG, all one word, when you buy a ticket at MITEnergyConference.org. Come say hello, network with us, enjoy our live show, talk to fellow energy geeks, and get 10% off in the process. So, last Friday, a group of 15 middle school and high schoolers went to Senator Dianne Feinstein's office to ask a simple question. Do you support the Green New Deal? An edited version of the video posted by the Sunrise Movement showed Feinstein lecturing the activist kids about civics, dismissing them by saying, you didn't vote for me. Senator, if this doesn't get turned around in 10 years, you're looking at the faces of the people who are going to be living with these consequences. The government is supposed to be for the people and by the people and 
You know what's interesting about this group is I've been doing this for 30 years. I know what I'm doing. You come in here and you say it has to be my way or the highway. I don't respond to that. I've gotten elected. I just ran. I was elected by almost a million vote plurality. And I know what I'm doing. So, you know, maybe people should listen a little bit. As is usually the case, there was much more to the story. A longer version showed Feinstein in a much more favorable light, in my opinion. And then the story devolved into pretty standard political territory. We're more interested in the bigger issues that this incident highlights. The upheaval in the Democratic Party, kids as a climate constituency, whether the rules of climate politics are different than other issues, and whether political realism, climate delayism, and climate denialism are part of the same strand. So, Catherine, let's start with the senator herself. Uh, Senator Feinstein is a stalwart in the Democratic Party. She has a very long history in politics. Can you just remind us who she is and and then why she was the target of this video? Yeah, she's been a public servant since 1969 when she ran the Board of Supervisors in San Francisco. She was there when Moscone and Milk were gunned down in 1978, and she became the mayor of San Francisco, the first woman. She and Barbara Boxer were the two first women senators of California. Um, She has a 90% score from LCV. So she's always voted really, really strong on climate. She is very powerful in the Senate. She is ranking member of appropriations, uh, which is one of the most powerful committees. Um, She has been a stalwart and she will be on the side of climate change. The reason they asked her and wanted to get her on the record is probably because her the junior senator from California, Kamala Harris, has has offered full throated support for the Green New Deal. So I think they were trying to get Senator Feinstein on the record. But keep in mind that Senator Feinstein is not like Nancy Pelosi, who invited like 45 of her favorite grandchildren to gavel in the Congress, like Feinstein is more reticent. She's more contained. She has a very different personality. And so she doesn't come across as a warm person, but she's a very serious and powerful senator. And so they're there in her office and they're asking, will you support the Green New Deal? And she's saying, well, I think the language is thin. Here's my own resolution that mirrors what you're asking for. What was she presenting to them? What was that plan she was talking about? Yeah, so she has a four-page resolution that essentially is not completely dissimilar in the way it lays out the issue. Now, it does say go to zero uh, emissions by 2050, so it has a longer timeline. And some of the specifics of it are more about reinstating what the current administration has been tearing down. So some of it is putting back into place things that have been taken apart. And it's certainly not as aspirational or moonshot-like as the Green New Deal. But it is something that if you are a serious senator that wants to get something done, that is what you would put forward. Jigger, what was your reaction to the video? And did the longer version that came out right after change your reaction? Well, look, I I think Dianne Feinstein has been a champion for clean energy and for uh, carbon emission reductions. And so I think that's great. I Not dissimilar to our previous segment on the Green New Deal, I think that there are there are a lot of people out there who are just stuck in pragmatism uh, 
and that includes um, you know Diane Feinstein and and Nancy Pelosi and I saw Steny Hoyer this week and he was sort of saying the same thing and you know I just think we're past pragmatism. I think these kids in general are saying that you know James Hansen testified over thirty years ago, right? I mean that at some point we can't just be pragmatic about this. We actually have to meet the science and. I think she was just like, well, that's nice, but you kids don't know how things work in Washington. And and I think that's what caused this major reaction. It wasn't necessarily this, the specific words that Feinstein used. It was that she wasn't able to level with the kids and maybe even deflect the conversation about the Green New Deal and just say like, you know what? You're right. We do need more powerful action. I think what you're doing is excellent. I totally agree that you're going to face the consequences and that we need to do something much bigger. We didn't even have to get into this like blind-by-line policy debate that she appeared to try to get into. It's more about leveling with the kids themselves. So I agree that she seemed tone deaf to just being around kids. But at the same time, we shouldn't ding her because she doesn't know how to be warm and fuzzy in the moment like that. Or, you know, I just, I think that is the wrong reaction. I I know a lot about kids. <laughs> so I have, I have four <laughs> kids, the, the youngest of whom is 15. And uh, yes, you do have to go through teenage years that many times and in the same way. Um, but I've also taught a lot of kids. I've taught science classes. I've taught, taught Girl Scout troops. I used to be a substitute gym teacher. And in a totem pole, this is the part of the totem pole that's under the ground. I mean, I have been working with kids for my entire life. And there are a few things about kids. One, they smell fear. They know when you're not telling the truth. Number two, they can't contextualize. So when she says, I've been doing this for 30 years, that means nothing to them. (laughs) They're living in the moment. Their only history is like when my baby brother was born, I remember how idyllic life was before that. Everything is about them and about being in the moment. And the third thing is like you never argue with a teenager ever. You can't. They don't know how to concede. You say your piece and you're done. So there's like just some things about being with kids that I think she wasn't mindful of or she wasn't ready for that I just think that's part of the way it happens. That said, this is the way grassroots advocacy happens. People show up. They're your constituents. You have to interact with them. And I think that's something that every single politician has to do. So I don't want to litigate Senator Feinstein's comments anymore. I'm sure, you know, she felt bad and she certainly didn't mean to appear condescending. She was legitimately trying to engage the students. But it did spark some reactions that I think are legitimate, Uh, one from Bill McKibben and one from political commentator Greg Sargent, who said, this is a moment we can learn from. It's about how to talk to kids differently about climate change, because climate change is a different generational issue. And many people argue that kids should have a stronger voice when it comes to the policy and politics of climate related to other issues. So does climate change make kid constituencies more powerful? I do think that things are going to get far worse around polar vortexes, around hurricanes, around wildfires, around other things 20 years from now, right? 20 years from now, I'm going to be in my 60s and I'll be able to retire where I want to go and just sort of like find the one place in the world that's unaffected by climate change or that's lightly affected by climate change and retire there. Whereas the rest of these kids are going to have to work in these places. I mean, in New York City, it could be possible that we can't keep up with 
pumping water out of the subway anymore because sea level rise has been become that bad, right? I mean, there are entire communities around coastal areas where homes will actually become worthless, right? You're already seeing people outside of Charleston not be able to sell their houses because of climate change. And so I do think that kids are going to face something that is largely irreversible 20 years from now. So it is not uh, it is not unreasonable for those kids who have educated themselves about the worst impacts of climate change to demand that the adults actually work a little bit harder and a little bit faster at staving off the worst impacts of climate change. Yeah, and I think kids are as much a constituent as anybody else. Elected officials, once they're elected, they are responsible, whether local, state, or national, for protecting and representing everybody. So kids are a critical voice. Now, climate is an issue that has really, you know, struck home for a lot of them. But you know, there are other issues like gun control and education that kids are all that are also impacted by and that they care about and are starting to become more politically active in. So I think this shows that young people now are becoming more active and uh, that climate change is something that they are impacted by and that they can also impact. What does this tell us about the tumult within the Democratic Party? Ben Geeman of Axios had a good piece where he pointed out that Feinstein's resolution, the one that she points to in this video, sets this net zero goal by 2050. It's a very difficult task, but somehow Feinstein is portrayed as this horrible person who's crushing hopes of action. How do you read this sudden shift of climate politics where, you you know, you have resolutions and ideas that were once considered fairly pre- progressive within the Democratic Party that are now seen as backward? I think it is totally fine. I think you need all kinds of ideas out there. I think the Green New Deal is the left flank deal. Maybe Feinstein is more toward the center. But in the end, Minority Leader Schumer and Speaker Pelosi are, and they'll do it slightly differently because they're in different places and with different bodies, but they will come together on what they want to do and how to do it. And so I think this is healthy. I mean, at least we're talking about climate change. I am completely behind what AOC said, which is that the that going forward, delayers will be in the same camp as deniers. Like I I am so frustrated by where we are today. And I can see how in 2009 people thought that the solutions weren't really ready for prime time even though I thought otherwise. Right? And Michael Liebrick has a great piece on this. Um but you know, today that is not true. I mean to suggest for a moment that the work from the International Energy Agency or the World Economic Forum or IRENA or or the National Noble Energy Laboratory or whatever doesn't stand alone. Every one of those groups have, have outlined hundreds, if not thousands of technologies and have shown exactly how they can be deployed at scale to thwart the worst impacts of climate change. Right. I mean, like, we actually know exactly how to do it now. And the fact that people are still saying that we should wait until 2050. Now, do I think we're going to hit 100% by 2050? Maybe, maybe not. But maybe we'll hit 82%. 
you know, by 2030, if we actually try really hard. I just remember the days, and I've said this countless number of times on The Energy Gang, where America has truly lost its ability to do great things. And I do think that's Dianne Feinstein's fault. And I do think it's Nancy Pelosi's fault. And when I heard Steny Hoyer talk on Tuesday, he said the same damn thing, which is like, well, we need to be more moderate, and we need to like make sure we can pay for everything. And at some point, I'm like... I don't think Kennedy said, we're going to get a man on the moon, maybe in 30 years, we'll try really hard to do it faster, right? When EPA passed the first Clean Air Act rules, we did not know how to use scrubbers. Scrubbers were not a technology that were ready to go. But American ingenuity solved the problem, and we figured out how to like get people from dying on the streets from asthma in Los Angeles. And so I just believe so much in American ingenuity and American capacity, and I wish for a second that these 80-year-old politicians believed as much as I did in American ingenuity. That, I think, elevates this discussion, and it's where we need to be. All this quibbling over the language— you know, whether the Green New Deal is too thin or sets too ambitious policy or whether Dianne Feinstein's resolution is the correct one because it's more detailed. It's kind of beside the point. Uh, Greg Sargent pointed this out on Twitter and he said this sort of delayism or this political realism has allowed GOP climate denial to put limits on our political imagination. And that's what this is all about. And then as you pointed out, Jigger, AOC later tweeted about climate delay, saying climate delay is on par with climate denial. And that seems to kind of echo this sentiment. Political realism is somehow linked to delayism, which ultimately has the same outcome as denialism. How do you read that through line, Catherine? Is that taking it too far? Or does she have a point? Yeah, so I'm a little bit of two minds. One is, you're right. We don't want to put ourselves on a blue light special right now. That's a Kmart reference for anybody who remembers <laughs> Kmart. Just like, let's not negotiate against ourselves, right? Let's like, let's put something big out there. I think that's great. That's the Green New Deal. At the same time, the reality is going to be slightly different. I mean, I am so grateful that we are actually talking about this again. We were not allowed to talk about climate change for a really long time. And now we can, and it's out there, and it's front and center, and it's one of the most important issues polling right now, and that is so important. So I think we're going to move in the right direction, and, and it may not look just like the Green New Deal, but at least we've got people pushing on all fronts. I suspect there will be many more awkward Facebook videos to come. Coming up, lobbying ethics and utility power in Washington. First, support for the energy gang comes from Dandelion Energy, the leading home geothermal company just five feet below the surface of your home. The temperature of the earth is warm enough to provide you with heating in the winter, and Dandelion Energy uses cutting-edge geothermal technology to harness that warm temperature to reliably and safely heat your home. You can avoid expensive, outdated, and dangerous heating fuels, particularly here in the Northeast. Homeowners who make the switch to geothermal heating save on average $2,250 per year. Visit dandelionenergy.com gtm to see if your home qualifies for geothermal heating. Support for this podcast also comes from Wonder Capital. Hey, did you know that Wonder Capital also has another podcast? We've done three episodes with Wonder on the Interchange feed in our most recent 
is all about building an intentional career. We talk with Dave Reese, the chief technology officer of Wonder, who before co-founding the company was hit with an existential challenge as a software developer. So in this episode, we detail how Dave made specific choices to change the direction of his life and how to design a career, a product, and a startup team with intention. Listen to that episode on the Interchange feed and find out more about Wonder at wondercapital.com gtm. New documents reveal a very cozy relationship between America's top air pollution regulator and the coal-heavy utilities he's supposed to be regulating. Bill Wareham is the assistant administrator of the Office of Air and Radiation. That's EPA speak for power plant cop. Here are a list of things that the office covers straight from the EPA website. Pollution prevention, air quality, industrial air pollution, acid rain, ozone depletion, radiation protection, and climate change. According to Wareham's bio on the site, he recently worked as a partner for Hunton and Williams LLP, where he focused on air quality issues. What isn't there in his bio, just a few months before taking his post at EPA, Wareham's firm and Wareham himself were working directly with a utility group focused on fighting EPA air quality regulations. Zach Coleman is a reporter for Politico. He's one of the reporters, alongside Alex Guillen, who revealed the extent of the relationship between Wareham and coal utilities. And it also sparked some other journalism on uh, Wareham's ethics from the Washington Post. So Zach joins us from Politico's offices just outside D.C. in Arlington, Virginia. Hey, Zach. Hey, Stephen. How are you? Good. Thanks for coming on. So who's Bill Wareham and why did you direct your attention to him? Well, Bill Bill Wareham, as you noted in your intro, is the EPA Air Administrator. He has the whole suite of the regulatory folder on climate change policy, air pollution. Uh, he, He is the head guy devising these regulations and actually really you know, revising what the Obama administration had done. Uh, he comes from the lobbying world. Uh, before he was at Hunt and Williams, he was at Latham and Watkins uh, after uh, the Bush administration. So he has been around K Street. He has been around D.C. He knows these issues inside and out. And that is exactly why the Trump administration wanted him inside the EPA right now. And what do we know about this group that his firm was working on behalf of the Utility Air Regulatory Group. What were these power companies trying to accomplish by spending money with Bill's firm? Well, these companies were some of the biggest utility players in the country. You're talking about Duke Energy, you're talking about Southern Company, you're talking about Dominion, AEP. And what they did was form a sort of coalition through Bill Wareham's former lobbying and law firm to take down air regulations. So they were fighting some of the most prominent regulations you can think of. The Clean Power Plan was in their sights. Mercury and air toxic standards was in their sights. And they created this group in a sense to make sure that these companies' names wouldn't show up in court documents so they could take this approach to regulation while saying publicly that they are transitioning away from coal, that they're trying to be environmentally friendly when They were actually paying a law firm to do exactly the opposite. So we've known for a while about Bill Wareham's work. I mean, it's no secret that he has worked on behalf of these companies before. Um, But but these documents you uncovered show a deeper extent of that relationship. What do they show? Like, what, what do these documents tell us? 
Well, what's interesting is there is no real entity known as UARG, the Utility Air Regulatory Group. So they kind of exist on paper through Hunton and Williams, which is now known as Hunton Andrews Kurth. So in a way, who is Bill Wareham really representing? Is it this idea of UARG or is it the component parts of UARG? And that's something that has been an ethics question uh, for for ethics officials that I've talked to because he knows who comprises UARG. And yet he doesn't recuse himself from working on all of those uh, issues that would affect those clients or meeting with those uh, component parts of UARG. So I think that's uh, uh, something that a lot of ethics officials are going to be mulling is what is the real legality of something that is formed in a, a small group of companies for a specific purpose that exists on paper through a law firm and doesn't actually have a tax ID number, doesn't file 990s, it's not incorporated anywhere. Uh, so, so I think it's raising some interesting questions about how you get at who some of these government officials now actually were, were representing in private practice and whether they would have a conflict of interest by continuing to speak with those companies or deciding matters in which those companies were involved in. So I want to use this opportunity to talk a little bit more about the Utility Air Regulatory Group or what we know of it. But first, I want to talk about the, the ethics here. Catherine, you're a lobbyist. Where does this relationship fit on the unethical to illegal spectrum? So, um, yes, I'm a lobbyist. And in fact, lobbying is protected under the First Amendment. So just so everybody knows, it is a legitimate um, course of a career. Um, you know, there are a lot of coalitions that form. Uh, this is this is one way to really get things done in D.C. is to pull together people who have the same mission and work towards some kind of, um, you know, mission-based campaign. We do it all the time with what we do at my firm with clean energy um, and land issues. So this is not unusual. I think what is unclear in this instance is what exactly he's been recused from. So it, that seems unclear. And I think the inspector general is going to be doing an investigation and the House of Representatives is going to do an investigation of that. So part of it is what are you, you rec recusing yourself from? Now, he should not be recusing himself from all this stuff. From his point of view, he took almost a $2 million salary cut to go into a job as a regulator. So he actually wants to implement all the things that he's been working on for all these years, I I'm sure. Like, otherwise, why on earth would he ever go into EPA unless he had already figured out what he wanted to do when he got there? Now, there are restrictions on lobbying placed by different administrations. So Obama, President Obama had very strict restrictions on lobbying, both from when you were part of the government went back out, you couldn't lobby that agency for two years. Um, under this administration, it's one year. So it's, it's less, I think it, that Trump had originally talked about five years, and it's really, you know, only one year. And in some instances, like Corey Lewandowski went right back out to K Street. So it kind of varies according to different people. Um, under the Obama administration, also, you couldn't take a job within the administration if you had been lobbying 
two years before. So a lot of people were actually precluded from going into the Obama administration because they were registered lobbyists, even if they hadn't lobbied that agency, if they were registered at all, if they hadn't delisted two years before, there were a lot of really qualified people who ran trade associations who were not lobbyists for specific companies, but who could not get a job in the Obama administration. And that does not seem to be the case in this administration. Zach, what do we know about the kinds of issues that Wareham is working on that directly impacts the companies that he was lobbying on behalf of just months before he entered the job? Right. So he is working on the replacement for the clean power plan rule, which is known as the affordable clean energy rule, that's directly tied to what UARG had been trying to tear down. They were very much against the clean power plan. He's also working on the mercury air toxic standards. Again, that's another policy that UARG had in their sites. Uh, He's also working on new source review, which is a complicated permitting regime that basically says, If you're going to make an upgrade to any facility, you have to go through another round of permitting if that upgrade is going to result in more pollution. So he's got some of the biggest targets from UARG in his sites, and that's exactly what he's working on. His, His basic portfolio is what UARG was trying to tear down. Jigger, I want to get your take on... UARG. How do you square this private activity with many of the sort of milquetoast public statements from these utilities about regulations? It's clear that they're spending a lot of money to fight these regulations still. I think we have to start by saying that to Zach's, you know, reference earlier, um, Bill was collecting money up until he got his job, right? So the utility companies who cut those checks knew that this was a pay-for-play membership fee, right? This was not lobbying in the traditional sense where they were saying, well, we're going to give you this money to influence regulations. They gave them this money knowing full well that Bill was being considered for this position at EPA, right? So, So this is as close to a bribe as you could probably make. And I think it's important for folks to recognize it as such and not just influence. Um, because it's just it because I think it colors it differently from an ethics point of view. And then I think when you square this with renewable energy and all the other pieces that people are saying nice things about, it it comes down to the fact that this is really complicated and it I don't know how to square it in my own mind with the fact that these are investor-owned utilities. There's a reason why Duke is at the top of that list right? For all of the stuff that Jim Rogers said beforehand and the current CEO is saying now, they are one of the most polluting companies in the country. From their coal plants to their fly ash ponds that that routinely spill illegal amounts of fly ash into waterways during hurricanes, which are becoming increasingly more frequent. So they are in an existential crisis. They need relief from these fly ash regulations or else they will cease to do business in North Carolina. Zach, of course, you have to be very careful in the way you phrase this sort of relationship. But Let's kind of play off Jigger's characterization there. Do do you think that Wareham was doing business with these utilities under the assumption that 
he was going to have this high profile job within the administration. I mean, what can we say about that, uh, you know, the, the promise of what that relationship would bring? I wish I could get into his head and, you know, ask whether that was something that he was considering all the while. But the fact of the matter is, UARG had been a part and parcel of Hunt and Williams for several years. This didn't start when Bill Wareham's name started circulating in the rumor mill. So I can just say that this is something that Bill Wareham wants to do. A lot of the policies that he's taken up since rejoining the federal government are the same things that he was working on when he was in the Bush administration as the number two under Jeff Holmstead in the air office. So I don't know whether it's a pay-to-play thing where they knew exactly that Bill Wareham was going to be the guy in charge. However, they knew very well that Bill Wareham could be a guy in charge. I think that that's very fair that he is someone who has been active in some of the more you know, high-profile regulatory cases of the Obama years. So if you had a short list of people who would be good in the Air Administration office in, in an EPA, in a Republican EPA, you would probably think Bill Worm's on that short list. Oh, definitely. And there are over a dozen EPA nominees that were former lobbyists, so including from Hunton. So they've really been stacking it up. So they had to know. And he was acting assistant administrator for that same office under George W. Bush. And the Democrats blocked that confirmation. Catherine, you're very familiar with the brokerage of power there in Washington and how, you know, big groups spend money on lobbying. How do you square the public declarations of a clean energy transition that we've heard from many of these utilities with the amount of money that they're spending on fighting, you know, uh, advanced but still pretty basic Clean Air Act regulations? Yeah, it's super disingenuous. They also have so much power that if you're trying to even get one little thing done, they can say, oh, no, we're just going to crush it. We don't really care about that thing, but we're going to kill it anyway, because we can. I mean, this happens all the time with what we work on, because, you know, certainly the clean air, and I represent a lot of small startups in innovation, they don't, they can't compete with the funding that these companies have. So you have to figure out other ways to get things done. What does this tell us about the state of lobbying ethics in Trump's Washington compared to, say, the previous administration? Well, I think that the real story about the ethics here is what is legal. And this is legal. What he's done appears at this point to be legal. But what we can see is the revolving door is spinning very, very fast here. uh, And there is no real qualm about hiring somebody who might have been doing the bidding of the companies that they're now regulating just a few weeks or even months prior to being nominated. So this is a story that we've seen throughout multiple agencies, not just in the energy space. And it, it's just the, the wheels are off. You know, this is hard to, it's hard when our norms have shifted so much to be placated by this type of activity. This, I mean, this is, I don't know whether it would have been tolerated in another administration. I, I haven't covered that many others. It's been Obama and this one, but it's it's kind of fascinating to see that this revolving door has been uh, so easy to go through. 
Yeah, so the EPA administrator um, who has been nominated, Andrew Wheeler, who's been the acting administrator, uh, lobbied for Murray Cole. And right now it looks like you know Senator Collins, maybe Senator Tillis uh, on the Republican side and Manchin on the Democratic side who often sides with the coal industry, they're all going to oppose his um, confirmation and yet he probably will still get through. Zach, we now understand why this story is important, but how did you get on it in the first place? Why did you pursue this story and what led it led you to it in the first place? Well, I think that shining a light on dark money groups is important. There's only so much that we can do from FOIA. And we know very well that industry players are very happy to spread their money around in ways that we can't track. So I've reported previously on utility interest ties to ALEC and some of the lobbying that they were doing through ALEC to essentially gut greenhouse gas regulations and policies, even while they were putting on a public face that was very different than that. So th- that led to a natural interest in an organization like UARG. And at this time, when there are a bunch of former lobbyists in the EPA, I think it's absolutely an appropriate time to figure out whether some of those officials are connected to some of those dark money groups and whether they're acting on behalf of the companies that are actually funding those groups. Zach Coleman is an energy reporter for Politico Pro. He is a pro himself. I've been following his work for many years. Uh, Fantastic reporting, sir, and thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me. Let's wrap up the show with some free electrons. So, Jigger, when I follow you to San Francisco and I barge into your office and demand you support your favorite issue, what are you going to pull up? What are you going to talk about? Well, first, I'm going to take you to Phil's Coffee to calm you down because it takes five minutes to get your goddamn coffee from there. <laughs> um, but but like, but then I wanted to talk to you about CalSeed. So, you know, our good friend Danny Kennedy uh, runs CalSAF, and they've got this program called CalSeed, which has funded 46 companies with over $20 million of capital mobilized. And they're generally like $450,000 grants um, to really help early stage companies prove out their thesis and get to the next level. And they've got um, their application processes open from March 1st uh, to March 11th uh, for the next round of companies. So if you've got a great company and you think that $450,000 or something less than that would help you get to the next level to prove out your concept, then they are open for business. Catherine. When I march into 38 North Solutions office with 15 kids in tow and I Facebook live a video of you and demand that you talk about an issue you're obsessing over, what is it going to be? Well, I'll be on travel. So uh, two quick things. One is uh, I was at the Alliance to Save Energy uh, Great Energy Efficiency Day yesterday, and they released their energy efficiency policy priorities. And they're talking about bringing back tax cuts for consumers to install energy efficient equipment. So they're coming up with a bunch of ideas to put forward in an infrastructure bill or any anything else that moves. So whether or not we're incremental, they're they're working on it. 
Um, the second thing I wanted to mention was for anybody who hasn't signed up for Tom Tom Festival yet in Charlottesville, Virginia, should do so. Jigger spoke there last year, and I'm going to be speaking at the Renewable Energy Conference on the 10th. And uh, they wanted me to just do a straight up speech, but I had a better idea, which was to bring my brother in who lives in coal, coal and farm country in Southwest Virginia. He has his own clean energy radio show, and he is going to interview me and I'm going to interview him too. Uh, so it should be really fun and funny. The two of us have always had a really good time together. So please sign up for the Tom Tom Festival. That is so cool. The Tom Tom Festival has a very interesting lineup. And I am so sorry that we couldn't do a live show this year. We did get an invite and I'm just going to be traveling and we have a live show at MIT right before it. So it didn't work out this year, but we would love to do a live show there in the future because it is a really fantastic event. And I know that one of my favorite podcasts, the Slate Political Gab Fest, is going to be doing a show there. So we will join that lineup in a in a future year. Uh, it's it's worth your time if you want to go check out some of the other um, sessions and check out Catherine's cool interview with her brother and, and what Jigger's talking about. Yeah, and I took uh, my family there last year and they had a great time. So uh, my son was only two and a half at the time and he just... He just loved it. Uh, the arts and crafts, and you know, the they've got one of the largest uh, farmers markets. Um, it's just a, it's a really great place. That's awesome. You know, my mother's coming because <laughs> I'm from Lynchburg. It's right down the road, so she'll come and watch her kids. So the question is, will you walk or will you drive? And driving is on people's minds these days because my generation, the millennial generation, supposedly is going to ditch their cars and drive way less. We've talked about this on the podcast in the past. There were a lot of uh, pieces of analysis that came out around the 2012 timeframe showing this pretty strong dip in uh, vehicle miles traveled nationwide, and in particular among millennials who are increasingly moving to cities using public transportation and shared transportation options, just choosing not to buy cars. Well, what we've seen now in recent years is that that story is turning around. And it appears that the dip we saw was really fueled by the recession. Car ownership is back up for millennials and for Americans across the country, and vehicle miles traveled are also back up. So what's up with this? Why did we all of a sudden have such high hopes for the millennial generation, and now we realize that the car is here to stay? Uh, That research actually comes from Lucas Davis from the Energy Institute at the Haas School of Business. What, what, Jigger, what's your take? So I don't think it's definitive. I read the piece and I thought it had a lot of holes in it. It, it is true that, that there has been a tremendous amount of housing that has been built, even in places like Phoenix, that have no parking, right? They just assume that consumers will find other ways to get to work. And so I do think that that trend bodes well, and a lot of millennials live in that housing. It's also true millennials are not that young anymore. A lot of them are in their late 30s, and they you know, have kids and move to the suburbs and whatever, and Uber and Lyft and all those guys haven't created the new mobility dream yet um, that is allowing them to live their car their lives cars car free so i i i I do think a car free lifestyle is coming for even people who live in the suburbs and rural areas but i think we're just another 10 years away well we are just seconds away from the end of the show that's it folks 
spread the word about this show. Give us a rating review on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or anywhere you get your podcasts. Follow us on Spotify. I know a lot more of you are listening to us on Spotify. They are really coming out strong out of the gate, focusing on spoken word audio now. So very exciting. You know, if you're on Spotify, check us out there as well. With Catherine Hamilton and Jigger Shaw, I'm Stephen Lacey. This is The Energy Gang, produced by Green Tech Media and PostScript Audio. Audio.